In April of 1996, 19-year-old Stacy Stites was murdered. A year investigation led to the arrest and conviction of a man who has been trying to prove his innocence ever since. Currently, he is racing against an execution date set for this November. Was he wrongfully convicted, as the Innocence Project claims, or is he guilty of Stacy's murder, like the state of Texas says? I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. I'm glad to be back recording today. I don't know if you can hear that. That complete silence is the sound of my kids being back in school. So thankfully, I'm back to recording in the middle of the day while everyone's gone so that hopefully I'm not going to sound as tired as I may have sounded this summer. Today's case is a long one, so let's just jump right in. It has been loudly debated as a possible wrongful conviction case. It was recommended to me by Caitlin, so thank you for sending it in. But also, why did you have to recommend such a rabbit hole of a case? For those who are still interested in learning more about this case after you finish listening, just Google Rodney Reed Innocence and you will have a lifetime worth of court documents to read. I will try to remember to put some links in the show notes. If you don't see them in the description, they should be on the website as soon as I get it updated. So the first half of this episode, we're going to talk about the crime, the investigation, and the trial. Then the second half will be the appeals process. The questions that have come up, new evidence, new witnesses. You know how much I like to get into every detail that I can, and that's impossible here. But this isn't going to be a primer on the case. We're diving into it, like always. But there's just so much here, so much in the appeals, very little details. So what I'm going to do is just hit the parts that I find the strongest, most compelling, or just the most contentious, the parts that could go either way rather than getting into every little detail. The majority of the background on this case did come from a court ex parte filing. Thankfully for me, you can't copyright court documents like this. Case law is on my side with that, but I'm not going to put you to sleep by reading it verbatim. So let's go ahead and just walk through it. I've done my best to organize all the information into a timeline. And, of course, I've added pieces here and there. Again, a full list of sources will be on the website once I get that updated. But if you're really curious, you can always email me and I'll email you back with my list of sources. So the victim in this case was 19-year-old Stacy Lee Stites. She grew up east of Austin, Texas, and she lived in Smithville until she graduated high school in 1995. In May 1995, so pretty much just right after she graduated high school, Stacy met Jimmy Fennell at the Smithville Jamboree, which is a huge fair with carnival rides, food vendors, and it's Texas, so lots of musicians with cowboy hats. The pair became almost immediately 
inseparable. Jimmy at the time was attending the police academy, and Stacy and her mother moved to a nearby town called Bastrop, and she got a job working at the grocery store there. In October, Jimmy had finished the police academy and was hired on with the Giddings Police Department in December. So this is in that same area, but it was still about a 25-30 minute drive from Bastrop to Giddings. So Stacy and her mother Carol decided to both move to Giddings. So Stacy was going to get an apartment with Jimmy and Carol was going to move into the same apartment complex. So Stacy and Jimmy got engaged in late December, and in January 1996 is when they moved into the apartment. And the way the apartments were set up is that Carol was downstairs, and then there were stairs, and then you go, I think, either to the right or the left, and Stacy and Jimmy's apartment was. So it wasn't, like, directly above. It was above and over one. Everything seemed to be going perfectly for Stacy. She was close to her mom, so finding apartments so close together was perfect. She was in love with Jimmy. He had just started his dream career in law enforcement. The two had a wedding date set, May 11th, and Stacy was working on the plans for this big wedding that she had always dreamed of. There was one bump in the road, and that was that Stacy was still working at the grocery store out in Bastrop. So she was driving 25 to 30 minutes a day to Bastrop, and she didn't have her own car. She either borrowed her mom's car or she would take Jimmy's pickup truck. Her mom's car broke down enough times that she really hated taking it, so she took Jimmy's truck whenever possible. Stacy knew that she needed to bring in more money for this big wedding she wanted, so she switched positions at work. She had been a cashier, and she moved to the produce department. The produce department paid more, largely because it required third shift hours. She wasn't working all night, but she had to be to work by 3.30 in the morning to start stocking the bins. And Stacy had created a very set routine. She would get up around 2.45, take about 20 minutes to get ready, and then she would leave. When she got to work, she and a coworker named Andrew would always walk in together. Now, he usually got there a little before her, so he'd just wait in his car until she got there. This may sound like an odd practice, but it actually makes sense if you think about it. They were about to walk in the dark across a parking lot, and open up a building. They were doing a safety in numbers thing by sticking together. Because they walked in together, though, Andrew knew that Stacy was always on time. When she'd finish her shift in the early afternoon, she would go home to her apartment, but she'd usually go to her mom's place. They'd eat lunch together, Stacy would take a nap, and then the two would start working on wedding plans, making stuff for the wedding, until Jimmy got back from work. On April 22nd, 1996, Stacy took Jimmy's truck to work. Jimmy also had to work, so he took Carol's car 
even though it wasn't entirely reliable, he didn't have that much of a commute, so it was fine for around town. Stacy came home after work, did the lunch and nap routine she had down, and when Jimmy got back from work, he went right to Carol's apartment because he had taken her car. He had her keys. He returned the keys, and the three talked about the next day's schedule and car juggling. Jimmy didn't have to work, but Stacy did, and they were going to run errands together after work. So Jimmy thought it would make sense for him to drive her to work, drop her off. Then he could go get her afterwards so they could do their errands. This would have meant Jimmy would have had to get up and on the road at 3 a.m. to drive her. So Carol actually suggested that Stacy take Jimmy's truck and Carol would drive Jimmy out to the grocery store to meet up with Stacy afterwards. But Jimmy said it was fine. He would just drive her. He didn't mind waking up early. So Jimmy then left to go help coach a little league game with a friend. And Stacy stayed at Carol's. He got back around 8 or 8.30. And the two went back to their own apartment. Carol said they were in a good mood when they left her place. According to Jimmy, and of course, he's the only person we have at this point, they chatted privately about the next day's plans and decided he wasn't going to drive her to work. They were going to go back to Carol's idea of her driving by herself and then Carol bringing Jimmy out there. And Jimmy said he'd just talked to Carol some point in the morning about getting the ride out there. So around 9 p.m., Stacy went to bed and Jimmy stayed up watching TV until he fell asleep. He assumes Stacy left for work. All indications were that she left for work, but he had slept through her actually leaving. So on April 23rd, that next morning, Stacy did not show up for work. Andrew, the coworker she walked in with, was definitely concerned when she didn't show up at 3:30 because she was so punctual, but I'm sure his thoughts were more like I hope she isn't sick, rather than actually being alarmed at this point. He headed into the store anyway, got to work. He checked a few times to see if Stacy had come in, but of course she hadn't. The next point in our timeline is 5.23 a.m. A Bastrop police officer was doing just his normal patrol of a neighborhood around the high school and he saw a pickup truck parked in the high school parking lot. It was the only car there, and it wasn't there when he drove past through the area before, so he called in the license plate just to check if it was stolen. And he was told it was registered to someone named Fennell, but it hadn't been reported stolen. So the officer did a quick look in the window. He shined his flashlight in and saw that there were books and clothes on the seat, and the driver's seat was reclined to about a 45-degree angle. On the outside of the driver's door, on the ground, was a small piece of a broken belt with the buckle still attached. But the truck's ignition was intact, all the windows were intact, And there was really nothing there to make him think it was stolen. So he left. 
around 6.30, 7 in the morning, Andrew, the coworker, now he's alarmed. So he called Stacy's mom to check on her and see what was going on. And when he told Carol that Stacy hadn't shown up, she was immediately alarmed. And she called Jimmy, who was asleep, told him that Stacy never made it to work. Jimmy hopped up. He threw a shirt on because he was still in bed. He went down to Carol's apartment to get the keys to her car. He told her, call the police because he was going to drive around to look for Stacy. So I'm imagining at this point they both think maybe she was in a car accident. Something like that. So he drove her route to work and looked for any evidence of her, but he didn't see her and he didn't see the truck. And when Carol called the police, they didn't have any report that there was a wreck or anything to do with Stacy being injured. So they took a missing persons report. The police department immediately began to search, which is always a good thing to hear. We've heard about a lot of other towns who seem to think young adults just randomly run off and they put off searches. That didn't happen here. I guarantee it didn't hurt that she was a police officer's fiance, but whatever the reason, it's still nice to see action being taken right away and the family being believed when they say this wouldn't be like her to just run off. Obviously, because that patrolman had run the plates on Jimmy's truck, that showed up. So by 9 a.m.-ish, the investigator on the case, Ed Salmala, was at the high school parking lot. Crime scene investigators arrived, and they were photographing the truck. The truck was then towed to a local shop to secure it. While they were waiting on the crime lab to then transport it up to Austin for full processing. So, man, they're really taking this seriously from the jump. So while the car was sitting there in the local shop waiting, they went ahead and had Jimmy go out to the tow yard and look at it. Just have him see if visually he could see anything odd. They didn't want him digging through the glove box or doing anything like that. This was really just looking through the window to see things. And he noticed a few things. He said Stacy would not have driven with the seat reclined so far back or pushed so far back. She was short, so she wouldn't have been able to reach the pedals the way the seat was currently positioned. Stacy also always, every morning, took a cup with her in the car for her drive with water, juice, whatever in it. And he noticed that there were green plastic pieces on the truck's console. His thought was, did her cup get destroyed? He then saw carbon copies from his checkbook that were laying out. Then that broken belt that was on the ground, he said that was Stacy's. There was a shoe on the floor of the truck, but just the one. And he identified it as, yes, Stacy's shoe and what she would normally wear to work. We do need to remember, Jimmy's not just a concerned loved one. He's a trained police officer. So he saw some things that 
you and I maybe wouldn't have. He noticed a foamy substance on a carpeted section of the truck. To him, it looked like saliva. Others say it was a mucus secretion that possibly happened after death. He also noticed that there was a large smudge on the back window on the passenger side, and he didn't remember that being there before. And another odd thing he noticed was that the driver's seat belt was actually still buckled. So they sent Jimmy home, and the truck was moved to the crime lab in Austin for processing. While it was in Austin being processed that day, they got a call that Stacy's body was found. It was around three in the afternoon. A real estate appraiser had shown up a few minutes early for an appointment, and he decided to drive over to this road called Blue Bonnet Drive. And it's just this really pretty little road that cuts through the woods in the Bastrop area. He was out there to pick wildflowers for his wife, which seems incredibly sweet. But when he got out of his car, he noticed something in a ditch on the side of the road. It was surrounded by thorny brush. It was a bit back. It wasn't right near the road. He walked over and realized that this was the body of a young woman. Being 1995 and not having a cell phone, he got back in his car and drove to the nearest house and called police from there. Then he went back to where Stacy's body was and waited for police there. Absolutely did everything right here. This must have gone over the police radio because before they knew it, there was a helicopter overhead. It was the media. So they took a green blanket and they put it over Stacy's body because they wanted to prevent photographs or footage from getting taken by the press and getting out there. And they started processing the scene. Bastrop was a small town of about 4,000 people in the 90s. So the police department decided pretty quickly to call in the crime lab from Austin. Again, good decision here. They arrived a bit after 5 p.m. to start processing the scene. And there have been some criticisms of how they process the scene. One was that they had covered her with a blanket. Generally speaking, you don't want something touching the victim as it can change, damage, transfer evidence. Instead, they usually put up those tents that we see so that it's around the victim, but not touching the victim. And another thing that people have noticed, because while the media footage hasn't gotten out, crime scene footage from the police is out there, and so are pictures. Some of it shows up in the documentary, The State versus Rodney Reed. Some of it you can just find online if this is your sort of thing to look at. But what people noticed in watching this was that they didn't feel gloves were being changed enough. So they would pick up pieces of evidence, put them in a bag, use the same gloves to touch something else. And there's a concern that there may have been transferring or loss of evidence through this process, but I'm just putting that out there. 
honestly, I'm not one of those people that can watch these crime scene videos or look at crime scene photos. I find them very upsetting. And so I haven't looked myself. I'm just telling you what is out there. It looked to examiners from the start that Stacy had been strangled. There was a red indentation on her neck. And when they compared it to the piece of belt found near the truck, the marks matched the webbed pattern on the belt. There was also another piece of that belt found near the body. This wasn't the only injury to Stacy. She had scratches on her arms and torso. There were burns. There was a cigarette burn on her arm. But some of these were post-mortem wounds. Stacy was found wearing only a black bra, a pair of blue pants with a broken zipper, and one shoe. The foot that was missing the shoe had on a white sock, and the sock was clean, making it clear that she hadn't walked around outside after having lost her shoe. There was a white t-shirt found thrown on a pile of brush nearby, and Stacy normally wore a white shirt to work and then put on her red uniform vest shirt, whatever it was, on over that when she got to work. So they do believe this t-shirt was hers. And her work name tag was found in the crook of her leg. Because her pants zipper was broken, they could see her underwear had been pushed down around her hips. So they're suspecting a sexual assault. They did find semen on her and in her. And back at the lab, under a microscope, they could see that this was intact sperm, meaning it had a head and a tail. It was determined that the sex likely happened within the last 26 hours, since that was found to be the amount of time after sex that sperm would be found intact, head and tail. This turns out to be a huge issue later, since this isn't actually what the science says, but we'll get to that later. This is one of those episodes where we'll get to that later comes up a couple times. Jimmy told police that he and Stacy did not have sex the night before, so the investigators were pretty sure the sample was going to be from the killer. On autopsy, which happened the next day, Stacy's time of death was determined to be around 3 to 5 a.m. the day she was found. Again, we're going to loop back to this later. The medical examiner also found that many of Stacy's injuries were postmortem. Like I said, the cigarette burn was one of them. Several of the scratches were also postmortem, possibly from when she was dumped, but a cigarette burn, that's not from being dumped. That seems intentional. She did show some signs of being struck in the head before death, though not enough to damage her skull just enough to cause bruising, so very likely from a fist, from knuckles from a hand. The autopsy concluded that she had been sodomized, but again, looping back to that on appeal. When all the various swabs from Stacy's body were run for DNA, it showed that there was one single donor for the semen. And it was noted in the autopsy that her nails were shorter than the tips of her fingers. And some viewing the crime scene photos 
think that they were cut by a killer to remove any skin she may have scratched during the attack. If this is what happened, this forensic countermeasure, then we could be pretty safe to assume that the semen was not from her killer because why would he leave that behind, obviously, and worry about DNA from scratch marks? Others looking at the video, though, think these fingernails look more ragged, more like they were bitten rather than someone cut them. Stacy's body would be where the bulk of the forensic evidence came from. The truck was pretty much no help. The only clear fingerprints were Stacy's and Jimmy's, both known drivers of the truck. There were some prints that were too smudged to be compared to anyone. But the real question on the truck, even though there wasn't much forensic evidence, was this driver's seatbelt being buckled. It's an odd detail if someone drove the truck, getting out of it without unbuckling just seems odd. So they used a crime scene investigator similar to Stacy's size and put her in the truck. And they reclined the seat 45 degrees and then they buckled her in. They had two different investigators each try to pull her out of that truck, either by the feet or by the shoulders. Both investigators succeeded, both dragging her by the feet and dragging her out by the upper body. So now it's starting to look like Stacy was in her truck, belted in, and had been abducted from the truck. So that's one of the early theories that formed here. After processing the truck completely, it was returned to Jimmy. It seems a little iffy when it was returned, except that the documentation later provided by the state shows that he traded it in the day after. So that would mean he got it back the next day. Some say it was like four days before he got it back. But for whatever reason, this slip of paper says it was like the day after. So I wouldn't want to drive a car my partner had been kidnapped from or possibly murdered in. But releasing the truck this soon after doesn't seem like a really great idea, in my view. And later on, it would definitely limit the forensic testing that a defense team would want to do on it. But regardless, they processed the evidence they had, they gave Jimmy the truck back, and they processed all the evidence they were able to get from Stacy's body. So they have DNA. They have a full DNA profile, but no match. So for the next year, the investigation focused on interviews and DNA testing persons of interest. Hundreds of people were interviewed. We're talking ex-boyfriends, obviously, coworkers, classmates, friends, pretty much anyone. A list of 28 potential suspects was formed, and all of them were asked to provide a DNA sample. All but one of them turned over blood, hair, and saliva samples without issue, voluntarily. One refused, and we'll get to that in a second, but he ended up being compelled to, my assumption is a search warrant, and it didn't match. Jimmy Finnell, the last person to have seen Stacy alive and her fiancé, 
was a suspect early on, even though they suspected the sexual assault and even though his DNA didn't match, they still suspected Jimmy, or maybe not Jimmy directly, but that he had something to do with this. However, the apartment the two shared, which is where Stacy was last known to be alive, was never searched. It doesn't appear that the investigators ever tried to. I've read and heard in a number of sources that they did not have probable cause to search. But I don't see anywhere in the available documents that they even asked Jimmy for a consent search because you don't need a search warrant if someone gives you permission. It doesn't look like they even asked him, even though he was largely cooperating. He consented to DNA testing, obviously not a match. He was interrogated probably four or five times. He took two polygraphs, one on October 3rd and one on December 18th. He failed both of them. After the second one, he pretty much said he didn't kill Stacy. He failed because he was upset about her death, and then he lawyered up. This was eight months after the murder. I would not have made it much past probably the second interrogation before I lawyered up. I wouldn't have even consented to a polygraph, one polygraph, let alone two, before I had a lawyer to talk to. So all in all, for eight months, he was cooperating and they did not ask to search the apartment from anything I have seen. But what they did do was try to figure out if it was even possible for Jimmy to have done this. From their apartment, get out to Bastrop, dispose of Stacy's body, park the truck, make it back to the apartment. So the first issue with this is he didn't have another car. According to Carol, she had the keys to hers in her apartment. If you remember, Jimmy had to go down to that apartment the morning Stacy was missing to get the keys so that he could go look for her. So it's not like he could have followed Stacy in Carol's car, somehow intercepted her, killed her, got back in the car. There's no way that happened. So now the way this theory would play out is that he had Stacy in the truck. Either he was driving her to work like he initially told Carol he was going to do and something happens, they get in a fight, he kills Stacy, dumps her body, stages the truck in the parking lot. Or a theory that seems more popular in the innocence group for Rodney Reed is that Jimmy did kill her, but before they even left the apartment. So he took her from the apartment, put her in the truck, and then dumps her body, stages the truck. From the high school to the apartment, it would have been a 30 to 35 mile walk. That is eight or nine hours worth of brisk walking. He did that somehow in under four hours because remember, he has to be back at the apartment for Carol's phone call no later than seven. There's just no way that happened. But could he have gotten home another way? Taxi records were checked and it doesn't show anyone picked him up. 
They even looked at the vehicles that he would have had access to through the police department or any of his fellow officers had access to in the event one of them went out and picked him up. Police officers keep mileage logs, so looking at those logs would tell them if there was somehow this weird, you know, 35-mile trip, which would be 70 miles at that point round trip, and nothing showed up. There was no car that had this unexpected jump in mileage. That's not to say nobody used their personal cars, but they had nothing to link Jimmy to this crime, and he was eventually ruled out. Another person looked at in all of this was an officer Jimmy was very close friends with, Officer David Hall. His DNA didn't match, and he had an alibi of sorts. It came from his wife. And those alibis always seem like they could be a little shaky. But I mean, if you needed someone to alibi you for three in the morning, it would probably be the people who live with you. She did have a pretty specific story about why she knew her husband was home. Their baby, like two, three months old, woke up screaming at 3.30 in the morning and Hall basically held, rocked, bounced her while his wife made her the bottle. He had to be on duty at 5.45. He was on time that day, which meant he left his house around 5.35, which is after the truck was found. Logistically speaking, they couldn't find a way to place him in this puzzle. A reward of 50K was offered by Stacy's employer, and that brought in a lot of leads. One lead was about a man named David Lawhan, and allegedly David bragged about killing Stacy. But what really got police on his trail was that two weeks after Stacy's death, so we're talking May 1996, a woman named Marianne Arlt was strangled maybe 20 minutes from where Stacy's truck was found. David was quickly a suspect in that case and is currently serving a 50-year sentence for Marianne's murder. To add to this, the man who initially refused to give hair and DNA samples in Stacy's case was actually David's brother. The thought here is maybe his brother named Brian, that Brian thought David might be involved, and that's why he resisted giving his DNA. In attempts to connect Stacy and David, it's a little shaky. There were rumors that the two had a relationship at some point in the past, but mutual friends of theirs said they didn't even know each other. Both David and Brian's DNA did not match, so they were cleared partly through this DNA analysis. So let's get to August 1996 when this case took an odd turn. We're talking four months after Stacy was killed. Ed Somala, if you remember, he was one of the first investigators on the case. He died by apparent suicide. He left a note that referenced issues with his relationship with his girlfriend as a contributing factor in taking his own life. And he had probably two days before his death, been fired from the force for an undisclosed reason. All of the police officers connected to the investigation had been checked for a connection to Jimmy or Stacy, since Jimmy was 
a police officer, and they wanted to avoid a conflict of interest, mainly because Jimmy was a suspect early on. So Ed had been checked to see if he had a connection to Jimmy or Stacy, and there was no connection. But the investigator assigned to investigate this suicide did run the DNA and compared it to the DNA in Stacy's murder, which ruled Ed Somala out from being a suspect. Because it does look a little suspicious that here he is possibly racked with guilt over involvement in Stacy's murder if we're going the police conspiracy route. That said, Somala's brother has given interviews both on that documentary, State versus Rodney Reed, but also to Crime Watch Daily. He says he does not believe this was a suicide. He said his brother dropped clothes off at the laundry to be washed before he headed to Louisiana for a few days. He was going down there to visit a girlfriend. When he dropped the clothes off, he said he would be back later for the clothes. Then he went to an ATM and took out $600, which is pretty consistent with taking a trip somewhere. The money was found in Somala's truck after his death, so he didn't spend it, he didn't use it anywhere. So with the note about the girlfriend, maybe there was some conversation between Somala and his girlfriend after the ATM withdrawal. We don't know. But his brother also said he was shot in the left temple, but Somala could not have done that. He, not only was he right-handed, his left hand shook too much. So he thinks his brother was murdered and thinks it somehow links back to Stacy Stites' murder investigation. But Somala has been cleared by police. There is no indication he knew or suspected anything. We do have this seemingly abrupt and unexplained firing from the police force, but really that could be almost anything. The biggest break in the case came the first half of 1997 when information led police to look at a man named Rodney Reed. Rodney lived in Bastrop. He lived six-tenths of a mile from where the truck was found. And he was known for walking that area at night. He worked a night shift, and he would walk to and from work. He was usually seen walking as early as 9 p.m. and as late as 3 or 4 in the morning. A check of records showed that Texas had a DNA profile on file because he was under investigation for a 1995 sexual assault, and his DNA had been taken in relation to that. Rodney had been accused in something like four or five sexual assaults, but from what I can tell, he may not have been convicted of any of them, maybe only one, but possibly none. Charges were dropped in at least one, and in another, he was acquitted after he claimed that the sex was actually consensual. But with his DNA on file, it was found that Rodney could not be excluded from being the contributor of the semen found in Stacy. Over 99% of men on this planet could have been excluded, but not Rodney. Rodney was already locked up on a pending drug charge, so they went in to question him, and he thought they were sitting down to talk about the drug case. Instead, he gets confronted with Stacy's murder. Now, they didn't tell him about the DNA match, 
they did read him his rights. He waived them and provided a written statement that said, quote, I don't know Stacey Stites, never seen her other than what was on the news. The only thing that I do know is what was said on the news is that she was murdered, end quote. Then the police produced a warrant that they had to take a new DNA sample. So they took some blood, sent it to the lab. And this lab used a different, more specific DNA test, and it couldn't eliminate Rodney. So combining these two results, the odds the DNA matched anyone except Rodney was something like one in 5.5 billion, billion with a B. An independent lab then ran the tests again, and it was again a match. Okay, so we talk a lot in forensic DNA conversations about contamination of samples, and that's not what happened here. Rodney's DNA was in a database. It was not being tested at the same time and by the same people testing the evidence in Stacy's case. The samples from Stacy's crime scene were run immediately. They weren't stored in a box with other evidence where there could have been transfer. No one knew when they ran Rodney's DNA and when they ran the DNA from Stacy's case that they were trying to match the two. So there isn't a question of contamination here, accidental or on purpose. So Rodney was arrested and formally charged in May 1997. He pleaded guilty and went to trial in 1998. So the prosecution's main points were, first, the DNA. It was from Rodney. And two, whatever the defense said, they were going to refute it. So on the DNA evidence, obviously, we know it came from Rodney, and he did not dispute that at trial, and we're going to get to that in a minute. The prosecution did bring out some circumstantial evidence. The truck seat was pushed way back. The rearview mirror had been adjusted. This was for someone much taller than Stacy. Rodney, 6'2". The truck was left in Rodney's neighborhood in walking distance to his house. He was known to be out walking in that area late at night, about the same time when Stacy would be on her way to work. It's not clear how or where or when he intercepted Stacy, but the prosecution says he did. Like, it doesn't really matter how or when, but it's clear that he did. There wasn't any other bombshell evidence linking Rodney to the crime other than this DNA. There were two prints in the truck. They couldn't match to anybody. There was a hair on Stacy's body. Also didn't match anyone. There was no forensic evidence on anything they collected from Rodney, his clothes. He didn't leave anything behind aside from this DNA. And it almost seems odd that he left behind such damning evidence, but was so careful to avoid leaving anything else. So how will the defense explain this DNA? Basically, Rodney's defense was that he and Stacy had a consensual sexual relationship. They had been having a secret affair since the October-November before. His defense team, in addition to explaining away the DNA, wanted to show that there were other viable suspects. Viable suspects meaning a reasonable doubt. 
They pointed to Jimmy for one, and then they pointed to David Lawhon, who had since been convicted in the other murder. So David was kind of a weak option. The DNA cleared him. There didn't seem to be a link between the two. The defense did call witnesses who said they saw the two together in the past, but knowing someone and killing someone isn't exactly the same thing. And there was that supposed confession he gave out to friends, and they called Scott Purnell to the stand who said that, yeah, he heard David confess after a night of drinking that he killed Stacy with a belt, said something about how pretty her blue eyes were before she closed them. Super creepy stuff. But on cross-examination, the prosecution produced a written statement from Parnell that actually said that David's brother Brian was the one who confessed to him. This is the guy who wouldn't voluntarily give his DNA sample. So Parnell now says both brothers confessed to him at different times. The state then asked about the reward offered by Stacy's employer, and Parnell admitted he knew about it. So the state had pretty solidly poked holes in the reliability of this information, but kind of to drive it home, they had called two of Stacy's best friends from the time frame where people are saying Stacy and David knew each other, were possibly dating. And both of them said that never happened. Then David's former wife testified. They were married at the time of both Stacy and Mary Ann's murders. She said that David didn't come home the night of Mary Ann's murder, and the two of them got into a big fight about it. But nothing like that happened when Stacy was murdered, and she would have remembered because it was actually her son's birthday. So if he didn't come home the night of her son's birthday, she would have remembered and would have had a huge blow up. So the defense really focused more on Jimmy, and that's honestly where I see the more viable alternative suspect laying in Jimmy. They focused on the lack of what they saw as a thorough investigation of him. They pointed out that the apartment hadn't been searched, that the timeline the police used to steer their investigation, that was provided by Jimmy. Everything from the happenings of the day, what she did the day before, her usual routine, even the evaluation of the items found in the truck that morning was given to them by Jimmy. Their theory is that Jimmy knew about the affair Stacy was having with Rodney, and that was his motive. And they had a friend of Stacy's testify to Jimmy's controlling and possessive behavior. Now, none of this is proof that Jimmy had anything to do with Stacy's murder. Obviously, there's no forensic evidence linking him. But the defense doesn't have to prove that Jimmy did it. They just have to show that it's reasonable to believe he did. They're just looking for reasonable doubt. So with the DNA, of course, Rodney's defense is that they had a consensual sexual relationship and that they had last had sex two days before the murder. Now, the state expert was testifying that that's impossible 
the sperm wouldn't have been intact if it was more than 26 hours after sexual intercourse. So if it was consensual, Rodney would have had to have sex with Stacy in a time period when she was pretty much constantly with someone else, or it would have been right before she was murdered, which would then link her to the murder, which is what they're saying. This expert also testified that there was evidence of sodomy, and that further proved that this wasn't consensual. And according to the defense investigators in the documentary, The State versus Rodney Reed, they believed that this idea of sodomy was just really, really affected the jury a bit. And we're going to get back to all of this in a little bit. Rodney did have a DNA expert testify. And she said she didn't believe sodomy occurred, that any semen that was found in the rectum was so little that it could have been from vaginal sex. And anyone who has had heterosex knows how this could have happened. And the rest of you can just trust me. But she actually didn't believe it had happened at all or that there even was semen there. But had there been, that was an explanation for it. The defense tried to establish that Rodney and Stacy had a relationship by calling two witnesses to the stand. One was a family friend who had seen a woman stop by the house who was named either Stephanie or Stacy. This woman looked like Stacy, and she was asking if Rodney was there. This family friend assumed the two were dating, but again, she didn't say she knew they were dating. She wasn't even entirely sure if the lady's name was Stephanie or Stacy. There were a number of people who were willing to testify that they knew Rodney and Stacy were dating, but only two were called by the defense. The defense later said that the people offering to testify probably wouldn't have come across as credible. So it was a defense strategy to not put them on the stand, even though the attorneys themselves did believe them. They just weren't sure how they would hold up in court. But I will say a lot of people feel that this defense fell short. The attorneys were public defenders. They had about two months to prepare a capital murder case where the death penalty is on the table. They didn't call enough witnesses. This entire case surrounded the DNA and time of death, and they didn't call a medical expert to contest the time of death, to really put up a big fight about the intact sperm. And this will obviously come up later. The defense was not as rigorous as you would want in any case, let alone a death penalty case. And the jury did find Rodney guilty. He was sentenced to death. And the death penalty means an automatic right to a direct appeal. In some states, the appeal is mandatory. My understanding is that in Texas, it can be waived, but Rodney did not waive this appeal. He was maintaining his innocence and he wanted to be heard. So the automatic appeal means that the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals has to consider it. They can't bar it for any reason. 
they are only looking at issues from the trial in this direct appeal. No new evidence, no new witnesses, none of that. This is just the trial. Was Rodney given a fair trial? So the court was given a record of the trial, all of the documents, all of the evidence. Rodney's attorney filed their argument about trial errors. The state got to file an answer. They heard oral arguments. And the panel of judges upheld his conviction and his sentence. They could have reversed the conviction or just the sentence. They could have done either or both. They did neither. Then at some point in the late 90s, early 2000s, Rodney found a letter in the packet of documents for his case. And this became the basis of a post-conviction relief petition. This letter was from Wilson Young, who was one of the crime scene processing team members. And it was dated May 13, 1998. It had been sent to the lead prosecutor in the case, Lisa Tanner, and it referred to a request that two beer cans from the dump site be processed for DNA and then compare that DNA to some of the suspects. Timeline-wise, this occurred during the trial. Investigators had initially determined the beer cans to have no significance to the crime, so they didn't test them. According to the document I saw, there were pine needles on top of them, indicating they had been there longer than Stacy had. But there are other sources that dispute this. They say they were actually clean. They were not sun-bleached. They were on top of everything, indicating they were recently put there. But the defense wanted them tested, so the lips of the cans were swabbed and processed. Can number one, no DNA. Can number two had DNA that was not Rodney's. He was excluded. But because of whatever issue they were having with the testing, they actually couldn't tell if it was a mixed sample or a single source. If it was from one person, with the points of comparison they had, they could exclude Stacy. But if it was a mixed sample, it was possible that she was a contributor. Two other people who couldn't be excluded included a police buddy of Jimmy's. His name was Officer Hall. Remember, that's the one with the screaming baby in the middle of the night. And they also couldn't exclude Ed Somala as a source. He's the one who had died by suicide. So the problem with this letter is that it didn't appear to ever have been turned over to the defense. They requested these tests and then never got the results. I don't know why they didn't follow up on it, but I'm sure most of you know by now that not turning over exculpatory evidence is called a Brady violation. And this is grounds for post-conviction relief. At a hearing on the matter, the procedure for discovery, which is the process of the state turning over all this evidence and the exculpatory evidence as well, this procedure was gone over in super boring detail. So let's skip it, except to say that the basics are there are four copies of everything made, and one copy is always sent to the defense. 
the state's file only had three copies. So while no one specifically remembers handing that particular letter over to the defense, the fourth copy is gone. And so they're arguing, obviously, someone gave it to them since we don't have that copy. There was also further testing on the DNA that did exclude Stacy. And I have seen conflicting reports on whether it excluded Hall or excluded Salmala or it excluded both or it included both. I can't really imagine these two police officers sharing a can of beer, but there's conflict over what these DNA results said. But regardless of what the DNA results said, the problem is the letter being withheld. But it's not enough that something is withheld. Having given it to the defense would have had to have made a difference. That this evidence was enough to have made a difference at the trial where Rodney may have gotten a different verdict. The appellate court did not think that this letter met that bar, so this claim was denied. In March of 2005, Rodney filed a writ of habeas corpus, and a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot is going on with this one. There's that phrase, there's a lot to unpack here. I could use that phrase right now, but I'm not going to because I'm not unpacking all of this. I'm just going to give you the highlights. This was a huge, huge argument. So there are a bunch of Brady violation charges in this appeal over a number of statements that were allegedly made that were not turned over to the defense. And we're not going to get into all of them, obviously. Three of them stood out to me. Two were statements from two women, Martha Barnett and Mary Blackwell. And the other was a sighting by a family on the morning of the murder. So let's start with Martha. She was driving to work the morning of the murder. She pulled into a convenience store to get a soda. As she pulled in, she saw a four-door sedan pulling out and assumed it was the newspaper delivery guy. Then she saw a man and Stacy standing on the sidewalk in front of a red pickup truck that was parked. She shopped at the grocery store Stacy worked at, so that's how she knew her. She recognized her. She used to go through her lane when Stacy was a cashier. She didn't know the man, but said she later saw his picture in the paper and recognized him as being Jimmy. She could tell the two were arguing. Then they both got into the truck when she got out of her car. When she got back into her car, with her windows up and the truck's windows up, she could hear muffled voices, which gave her the impression they were still yelling at each other. When she left the parking lot, the truck was still there. This store is on the route Stacy would have taken to work. Now, Martha first said in her statement that this happened 5, 5.30-ish, which would have been impossible. The truck was found at 5.23 in the high school parking lot. When this went to a hearing, she had rolled back her time and now said it was actually 4.45, which was possible. In late 1997 or early 1998, so before Rodney's trial, she said she told this to her lawyer, who then told it to the DA. According to her attorney, the DA laughed 
and said he had all the evidence he needed. So her disclosure was never passed on. Now, the DA agrees that this conversation actually happened, but not quite this way. He said he was told about a client with information on the Reed case, but he didn't know specifically what it was. And he also said the conversation happened after the conviction. For some reason, the DA thought this other attorney was making a joke, teasing him, ribbing him over it. So he didn't actually take it seriously. The state at the hearing cross-examined her pretty harshly. She did change the time that this supposedly happened, going from a time that was impossible to a time that was possible. Then it came out that Jimmy, as a police officer, had actually arrested her for a DWI. And then the state called a rebuttal witness who they tasked with looking through all of the newspapers he could find from the time of the murder until Rodney's conviction. That is about two years worth of newspapers. He was supposed to try to find a picture of Jimmy in the paper in relation to the murder. That's how Martha said she recognized him. And this witness could not find a single picture in two years' worth of newspapers. So all of this and her credibility in the eyes of the appellate court was starting to fade. And if they didn't believe her, a jury probably wouldn't have, even if Rodney's attorneys put her on the stand. So the second statement from Mary Blackwell. She was a licensed Texas police officer, and she sat in front of Jimmy Fennell in a 1995 training class. She said she met Stacy one time when she had come to pick Jimmy up. And from what she observed, Jimmy was telling Stacy what to do and what she characterized as a commanding voice. She also heard other classmates talk about how nice Stacy was and how Jimmy was so abusive in how he talked to her. One of the last parts of this training course involved looking at photographs of real murders and suicides. They were supposed to analyze the photo they were given and rule it suicide or murder based on what they saw. And in a really cruel twist, one of the suicide scenes was of one of the student's relatives. I mean, why are they using local photos? I They had to have known this could have happened. But this was obviously so distressing that the class took a break. It was during this break that Mary said Jimmy said he would strangle his girlfriend if she ever cheated on him. She said he was going to get caught if he did that because he'd leave fingerprints, and he replied he would use a belt. Now, of course, this is exactly how they believe Stacy died. And a quick fact check showed that the two were in this training session together, just like she said. Her story was pretty specific. The court, though, found ways to discount what she said. She said these statements about strangling his girlfriend were said in front of a group, yet no one else in the class confirmed that they heard it. They also denied that they saw abusive behavior from Jimmy towards Stacy. There doesn't seem to be a motive to have lied here. 
But it also doesn't seem to add up for the court because Mary was at Stacy's funeral. As a police officer, she didn't say anything immediately about her suspicions. It took a while before she made them. And they couldn't necessarily prove that Martha's statement or Mary's statement were both given to the state before or during the trial. If they got the statements afterwards, this isn't a Brady violation not to turn it over. The last witnesses are members of the same family. It's a husband, wife, and the husband's sister. Now, I don't think the husband actually testified. I don't think he is really part of this. But according to the wife, they both saw a car behind their house in the middle of the night. The interior light was on, and they saw that there was a man in the driver's seat who was definitely not Rodney, and a woman in the passenger seat who they think was definitely Stacy. Now, the sister lived a block away, and she was awake super late at night into the early morning hours. And at some point between 1 and 3 a.m., she said a car drove by that had three people in it, and she believes it's the same car her brother and sister-in-law had seen. In this car was a woman in the passenger seat, believed to be Stacy. There was a white male in the back seat, and then there was a darker-skinned but not black man driving. Again, the dome light in the car was on, and she believes that it was Stacy. Now, the first witness, the wife, said the police actually came to her house to ask her about this. And she lied and said she didn't see anything because she didn't want to get involved and didn't trust the police. This wouldn't be a Brady violation. This is new evidence because they didn't come forward until 2002. But because none of this matched, any of Rodney's alternative theories to the crime, basically that Jimmy did it, the court didn't find that this would have changed much at trial. There were a bunch of other statements, too, and I don't want to downplay how much was in this appeal because sometimes it might not be one or two things that set off our alarm bells, but more the sum of all the parts. There's just so much here that maybe maybe the trial would have been different if all of this was there. But appellate courts tend to take things separately and rule on each piece. And in the end, the court decided that none of the statements amounted to a new trial for Rodney. So let's move on to the forensic evidence called into question here. An expert testified that the trial experts were speaking outside of their expertise, that there were no signs of sodomy, that intact sperm can be found days after intercourse, two to nine days, which is quite the opposite of what was testified to in court and really does support that Rodney's story could be true. Since the DNA was the strongest point of the state's case, anything that brings it into doubt seems pretty important to me. But the appellate court found that the circumstantial evidence still indicated a sexual assault. Stacy's pants were torn, the zipper was ripped, and her shirt was off. 
And they didn't believe she was having a relationship with Rodney while spending day and night planning her wedding to Jimmy. The court discounted the people who claimed they knew Rodney and Stacy were in a relationship. So Rodney's team also pointed out a few things that weren't in the trial that may have caused enough reasonable doubt by pointing at Jimmy and possibly his work buddies. One was Jimmy's polygraph results. He failed both. But polygraphs are not admissible. So the second was the DNA found on that beer can that didn't exclude Jimmy's friend, Officer Hall. Then there was evidence that one of Jimmy's other police officer co-workers left his shift on the night of April 22nd early, saying he was sick. They were saying perhaps he should be looked at. And the last thing was that the Giddings Police Department, and Jimmy specifically, had a reputation for violence on the job. So the court took all of this and ruled that it may have caused a, quote, healthy suspicion about Jimmy. They weren't convinced a reasonable juror would have found this high enough to be reasonable doubt. In the event you're even still listening to me after all of this, in short, the massive appeal was denied. But there was more on Jimmy I haven't mentioned yet. It wasn't directly connected to Stacy. It did show a propensity towards violence, though. In October 2007, Jimmy was called to a domestic disturbance, and he offered to give a 20-year-old woman a ride to a hotel. Instead, he took her to a park and raped her at gunpoint. He later pleaded guilty of kidnapping and rape in this case. And this is not the only accusation of sexual violence against Jimmy. This was just the only one he was convicted of, and he has since been paroled. Uh, 2018, he was paroled. So in 2015, Jimmy is in prison for sexual assault, and Rodney's on death row. An execution date is coming up fast. Ten days before the 2015 execution date, Rodney was granted a stay so the court could hear more new evidence. This was heard in 2017. One of Jimmy's friends testified that Jimmy actually said he was out drinking the night before Stacy was killed, which is the opposite of his court testimony, saying that he was home and sleeping. The defense wanted Jimmy to testify at the hearing to address this changing story. Jimmy indicated that, on the advice of his attorney, he would be invoking his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination across the board. If he was called, he would not answer questions, and so obviously no point calling him to testify. The new evidence in this appeal was pretty significant. Three pathologists testified that Stacy's time of death was wrong. It was not 3 to 5 a.m. Based on a number of factors, including lividity, it was determined by these three experts that she died before midnight, which was a time Jimmy places himself alone with her. Okay, time of death is hard to pinpoint, but this is significant. The medical examiner who did the autopsy and testified for the state at trial said his testimony was misconstrued by the state. 
His time of death ruling, putting it around that 3 a.m. mark, maybe even a little later, was never meant to be that hard and fast timeline presented by the prosecution. He also said the trial testimony that the sperm presence proved recent sex was wrong. It could have been days before, like Rodney has been saying. Additional experts also testified saying the sperm evidence was faulty, including the director of the crime lab. So the same people who gave the expert testimony discounting Rodney's story at trial are now saying their testimony was incorrect. This should be huge. We have the other early suspect in the investigation pleading guilty of a violent rape. We have the trial experts saying that their testimony was in error. This may not convince you that Rodney is innocent, but it really should start making us wonder if we are sure enough to put him to death. The court decided no. One decision came in 2017, the next in 2018. They did not think that this new information would have led the jury to come to a different decision. However, a juror giving an anonymous interview to Crime Watch Daily in 2016, she said she questions the verdict now. Based on the new information that has come out, she's not sure anymore. And she said what was presented at trial is what she convicted on. This new stuff is causing her to question. So we have the appellate court saying a jury would reasonably find him guilty still, but an actual juror from the case, she's saying she's not sure about that. There's some other stuff like Rodney. He asked for additional DNA tests to be run, things like Stacy's clothes and the broken parts of the belt that hadn't been tested. But those requests have so far been denied. In July 2018, there was a big article in the local paper about how Rodney's family and defense team and supporters were going to keep going in appealing his conviction and death sentence. They had even held a protest. The very next day, the state asked for an execution date to be set. Now, Rodney's supporters are saying this is retaliation. This is retaliation for the protest, for the media coverage. The state is saying, no, this is just our timeline. It was two weeks after the court denied his appeal. That was the time the defense team had to enter a motion to reconsider their decision. They had two weeks to do that. In those two weeks, the defense did not enter this motion, and that's when the state asked a date to be set. So we have two sides to this. State appeals have been exhausted, barring some more new evidence, but Rodney's attorneys have been weighing federal relief options. So it seems a little premature to set an execution date if he still has options. But a judge did set the date requested, and barring any other stays, Rodney will be executed on November 20th, 2019. He has been on death row for two decades. Like I said, there are so many more details to these appeals, and I'm sure people on the innocent side and the guilt side 
are yelling at their phones right now about the stuff I left out. I just, like I said, I just picked the things that stood out to me. I can't fit everything in here. But let's go ahead and take a quick look at the two suspects side by side. Both men have accusations for sexual assault and rape. We can't hold Rodney's past against him or Jimmy's against him without doing it to the other guy. So that's a bit of a wash. The case against Rodney really comes down to that DNA and maybe even the circumstance of the truck being found near his house. Now, he has an explanation for the DNA. That, to me, doesn't necessarily exonerate him because the two could have met up that morning anyway and got into a fight. The prosecution kept pointing to the wedding plans. Maybe Stacy said, this is enough. I need to commit to Jimmy and tried to break things off with Rodney. On the other hand, if she was having a relationship with Rodney and Jimmy found out, like Rodney said, there is his motive. He would have been able to find out where Rodney lived and left the truck there on purpose. It's only Jimmy's word that Stacy left the apartment alone. I have seen her mother's testimony from a recent hearing where she said she actually heard someone leaving the apartment that morning at 3 a.m. And if you remember, the stairs went right past her apartment. She said she only heard one set of footfalls going down the stairs. I don't know how early this information came out, though. If she originally said it right away in the investigation, it has a lot more weight to me than if it's something she's remembered over the years and is bringing it out now, 20 years later. I'm not saying she's lying at all. I think if anyone's invested in justice for Stacy, it's her mother. I'm just saying memories can warp over time. It still doesn't exclude Jimmy. He has friends who could have given him a ride. There's plenty of conspiracies out there that his friends actually helped more than that. Perhaps he really was home this whole time and someone else committed the actual murder on his behalf. There's a lot of ways it can play out. But what none of the scenarios have, if you remove the DNA and say, okay, Rodney had a consensual relationship with Stacy, remove that DNA and there is no evidence of either of these scenarios I've outlined. I'm just giving motives and maybe how it could have possibly gone down. Motive is not necessary in court to prove. Evidence is necessary in court. Okay, anyone who listened to Insight, anyone who's listened now to Crime Lines, I'm sure no one is shocked if you learn I'm anti-death penalty. So no, I don't think Rodney Reed or anyone else should be executed on November 20th or on any other day. That's separate from my view on innocence or guilt. I don't think he should be killed because I don't think anybody should be killed. For those out there who are pro-death penalty, I do know that I've found a lot of people who are pro-death penalty only if we are 100% sure, 100% sure the guy did it. We are 100% sure he got a fair trial, and we're not talking about a black man, all-white jury, small-town Texas with a white female victim who's the fiancé of a police officer. Because, I mean, right there we can make an argument if we wanted to go down that path. 
But let's say his defense attorneys planned a great defense in two months' time. Let's just say he had a fair trial. Even if his trial was fair, are you 100% sure we have the right guy? Is this Ted Bundy? Is this no question in your mind? That's my question for you. Where are you on this? Is there enough evidence to put Rodney Reed to death? Because we can't come back from that. There's the case of Malcolm Scott and DeMarco Carpenter out of Tulsa, Oklahoma. They served 20 years in prison for a murder, and they were exonerated because the actual murderer confessed. Yeah, he actually confessed. So if someone comes forward on November 21st and confesses, we can't help Rodney Reed if he's already been executed. So are we 100% sure Rodney did it? I want to know what you guys think. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. So if you search for Crime Lines, find me, post, post your thoughts on it. I generally have a posting on each place about the case. Post under that. Let me know where you fall on this. Because barring any further stays, Rodney Reed will be executed in three months. I'll leave links up for you guys to learn more about his innocence claims. They'll be in the show notes. I'll keep you updated on this. Listen to what I have to say. Go do your own reading. Let me know. Where do you fall on this? 